Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and today we're going to have a really interesting show. Um, telehealth, I describe it sort of as the connection between broadband uh, or the connection between broadband and every aspect of the continuum of care, meaning everything that's done to treat a patient or administer the patient's treatment process. Now, this is fairly simple to explain or to, you know, state, but it is definitely a bear to execute. Um, this uh, day, we're going to talk about um, a, an interesting project in Boston, and our guest today is John Campbell, who is the um, Chief Information Officer at Partners Continuum, Continuing Care. And John is going to explain uh, what I consider the model of telehealth, which is Boston Hope. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. I appreciate you uh, having me on today. Hey, no problem, no problem. I uh, I sort of found out about it um, on a on a lark because I was scamming scanning uh, LinkedIn, and I was just interested about this whole thing of creating a full thousand bed field hospital in seven days. So how do you do that? <laughs> or how did you guys do it? Um, sure, Craig. So thanks for the question. Um, so yeah, so um, let me give you a little bit of context as part of answering the question. So I, I work for Partners Continuing Care which is part of Partners Healthcare, which is a large integrated delivery system, meaning hospitals, physicians, et cetera, uh, in the Boston area. Um, so as part of our response to the COVID crisis, um, you know, we, like other parts of the country, um, anticipated a, a significant um, surge or, you know, need for additional um, hospital beds uh, in the Boston area. Um, so like other areas, and other cities around the country, um, we stood up this uh, field hospital um, of a thousand beds. Uh, what is different um, about our project is that um, our project was done as a private-public partnership between our healthcare system um, and the state and local, local government. Um, most of the other projects around the country were um, Army Corps projects. So the Army Corps comes in, they set up tents, they they basically do the whole thing um, stem to stern. So ours was a, was a local effort. Um, Partners Healthcare ran the whole project, again, with support from the city and the state. Um, and as you said, we set up a, a, you know, a thousand bed hospital in, in seven days. Um, part of that was you know, hiring uh, the right construction partners. So within the Boston Convention Center, um, we literally constructed walls, um, you know, 20 rows of 25 beds, um, with, uh, actually, is my math right there? No, 40 rows of 25 beds. Um, and of the 1,000 beds, uh, 500 beds are meant for, um, you know, patients that are literally moving through the continuum, meaning they're sort of stepping down from the acute hospital. They're, they're recovering, and they just need a lower level of care. The other 500 beds are for patients who are, who are also recovering, um, but it's more that they have um, social challenges uh, around going home. 
In some cases, they're homeless. In some cases, they live in their living situations. You know, maybe they live with an elderly parent or, or another family member who's in a high-risk category, and they can't uh, expose them to COVID until they're, they're fully recovered and cleared. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that gives you a little bit of framework for, uh, for the hospital, how we set it up, and, and where it fits into the local healthcare uh, system. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I want to touch on before I forget, um, is there a safety net for the person who is the, in that second category where um, they can't go home yet? Um, what, what happens to them long term? I mean, let me rephrase that. For the people who have a family member and they're in a high-risk category, that's one thing. But if the person is homeless, um, what happens to them after they're, in essence, discharged from the hospital? Sure. So, again, you know, they they would go to this facility, um, and, you know, the the goal there is to really, you know, get them – well, all the way well, meaning, you know, fully recovered and cleared of the, of the COVID virus. Um, and, you know, they would also try to provide some social services. So is there a way to get the person into a, you know, a group home situation or, or you know, one of the, one of the many um, services we have for the homeless? Um, you know, in some cases, people don't, you know, choose not to go into those uh, environments. They, they, they want to go back and live on the street. Seems hard to imagine or conceive of, but um, you know, at the end of the day, once once our once we have been able to get that patient fully recovered, um, and we've tried to attempt them to place in in other um, you know services or facilities or, or uh, places for uh, homeless folks. I mean, if they want to go back to living on the street, you know, we can, we can't prevent them from doing that. Right, okay. but, but we will try sense. to get them into another setting. Mm-hmm. Now, in general, for for the entire you know patient population at uh, Boston Hope, um, is most of their treatment a monitoring for the most part? I mean, because they've gone through the ICU process and, and you know critical care process and stuff uh, with various medicines and so forth, but um, once they enter the, you know, uh, Boston Hope, what else do they have to do other than than be monitored by doctors? Or is there anything else? Uh, sh- sure. Well, um, so again, this is, this is a full hospital. Um, I mean, there's no um, operating rooms, but there are, you know, there are beds, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's um, labs, there's pharmacy. So the patients will continue to receive treatments. Um, there is, um, you know, there's a gym for patients who need to do therapy to, to rebuild and regain their strength. Um, so, you know, it is a full, uh, you know, it is a full hospital. I think in terms of the level of acuity and the, the kind of clinical care that's going on, it's probably more like a skilled nursing facility than, acute, than an acute hospital. Um, but, mm, you know, we're gotcha. still providing, okay. we're, yeah, we're still providing you know, real clinical care to these patients as part of their recovery. Mm-hmm. So the back 
this up a little bit. Um, I understand what the need was, obviously, but um, how did this idea come to be? I mean, was there a plan or a yeah a plan already in place, or um, you know what 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 was the process then of you know one day we doing what our we do, and the next day we're like we're now facilitating a a major build out of uh facilities um, sure so um so again the so the organization I work for partners healthcare we have a we have a pretty robust um emergency planning uh operation that spans um the whole organization so the organization um includes uh twelve hospitals uh and about 10,000 physicians total, both um, hospital and, and community-based physicians. So, you know, there, there is a, as I said, there's a fairly robust emergency management planning operation. Um, there are, you know, we, we do a couple of different, you know, drills every year. Um, ironically, the, the past few years, we've really been focusing more on, uh, on IT as an area. Um, we've become so dependent on IT systems to provide care. Um, and with you know, uh, cybersecurity and, and, and other, you know, bad actors out there. The, the scenario that we've been planning, focusing more on has been IT. However, pandemic um, and other disaster response is an area that Partners has been focused on. Um, one of the things, you know, Partners did a few years ago anticipating uh, a pandemic-like event is, um, is to really start to stockpile uh, PPE. Um, so they literally rented a large warehouse out in the suburbs and, um, and, and you know, actively managed the, um, the inventory there to maintain about a 30-day about uh, supply. So, you know, as we continued to use PPE as part of normal operations, the shipments would go there to this warehouse in the suburbs, and then as we needed, we would, we would draw uh, from the inventory there. So there, you know, but what – what really happens when organizations have a good disaster response, um, you know, planning process, because you, you, you can never anticipate what the next disaster is going to be. And then even whether it's a pandemic or a hurricane or a flood or whatever, you know, you can't predict exactly what, you know, how it's going to play out. So what it really does mm-hmm. is it, is it, it, it gives you discipline um, to, to understand how to respond. And it also gives you, command and control, and that is to really understand, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is the governance over this? Like, who, who's in charge, um, and, and how do you make sure that, um, you know, that you can respond quickly, pull the resources together you need to pull together, um, and, and really respond quickly to an event, um, you know, whatever that event looks like. Mm-hmm. So now, if so, I so, were to so I guess, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So, no, no, go ahead. Sorry, one more. So just to finish that thought, Greg, sorry. So it's not like we had a pandemic, you know, response, you know, ready to go out of the box. But what we had was a good process and a good understanding of how to respond, good command and control, um, et cetera. And I think that really contributed to our success. Mm-hmm. So now when you – you know, when it became apparent that you were facing a pen, uh, pandemic, were there specific people assigned uh, to manage the execution of the seven-day build-out? 
sure. Um, yeah, so that gets into the whole command and control and, and, and governance. So, um, mm, yeah, so okay. once, once it was once it was decided and agreed between our organization and the city of Boston and the state of Massachusetts, um, you know, very quickly, um, you know, these org charts started to get published. And even, you know, some of the early versions of the org chart I saw had a lot of, you know, roles, but not names assigned to them yet. So very early on, mm, they okay. knew, you know, you needed to have an, a, an overall, you know, logistics chief of this whole operation. And then you needed a medical director and a chief nursing officer and a, you know, a pharmacist, I mean, go down the list of, uh, and then, you know, all the way down to, to, um, you know, nurses and doctors and, and, and staff. Um, so, you know, that happened very early on, very quickly. Um, there is a program within um, partners called the Wounded Warrior Project um, that exists over at Mass General. It is, uh, it's a mili- it's staffed by former military. Um, and it's, it, it's a, it's a program that serves, um, you know, military uh, survivors of, uh, of trauma and war. Um, and so we, so they, we literally tapped into that group because, you know, the, the reason the Army Corps gets tapped is they have, you know, they have, uh, they, they have that command and control and logistics experience. So, so we tapped into the people in that group to really uh, run this operation and run it like a military operation. Mm-hmm. So now would, or how would a smaller town, a mid-sized city, um, how would they either replicate what you're doing or change it in some way to make sure that what you execute is, is appropriate for uh, the, 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 the community that is being executed in? Um. So that's a good question, Craig. I think um, so, so. You know, I think one of the things that made this project unique. You know, I, I think we really do have a unique ecosystem um, in Massachusetts and in Boston, in particular, where you know, private industry, city government, state government, um, they they actually all work well together. There's really good. Uh, you know, use a uh, an, an overused word. There's good synergy, um, and, and that's you know, part of the reason we have um, or had a good economy and, and good, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, cooperation that goes on between, you know, business uh, and government here. I think, um, so I think part of it is making sure you have good, strong working relationships, right? So um, whoever, you, whoever the healthcare provider and providers are in that city or region, um, you know, they have to be clearly at the forefront of this effort you need good cooperation with um, local government um, because you need, you know, government has access to resources and things. So, for example, you know, we don't own the convention center. Actually, the city doesn't own the convention center in Boston. But, you know, bet- between, the, between us and the city and the state partnering together, we were able to get access to the convention center. Um, also being able to get access to other resources. You can imagine the logistics of getting I don't know, beds and, um, you know, computers and medical equipment and, um, and even staff. I mean, this whole, um, you know, the staff that are running this facility are not all our staff. They're staff that came from the community. They came from, some of them are in um, what's called the military medical reserves. So it's like the Army Corps 
except it's I'm not Army Corps, it's like the Army Reserves, except there's uh, there's a medical reserve um, that is uh, an extension of the military. Um, some of them, you know, came from other healthcare systems um, around the Boston area. So I think, you know, having, you know, not waiting until there's a crisis to form those relationships, um, maybe doing drills, local drills that, again, you know, we all do drills and planning within our, organ our own organization, but maybe doing drills on a regional basis to, you know, establish those relationships and that cooperation, because um, all of that will help when the time comes and you are, you know, pushed into action. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Now, is, you know, what you're doing in uh, Boston Hope, would that be applicable or transferable if you had a, um, uh, um, what would it be, an earthquake or uh, a hurricane? Um, are the, now, I understand that there are you know, differences of the, uh, the emergency itself, but how the response is put together and how the telehealth and the broadband and all of those parts come together, is that the same or do they do you need something different for different types of emergencies? Um, sure, that's a great question. So, um, so again, you know, as I said a, a, a few minutes ago, you know, every disaster is different, right? So we had, um, you know, we had the, mar the marathon bombing situation in Boston, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a number of years ago. That was probably our last, you know, disaster-like situation here in Boston. So, so, so each disaster has its own impact, right? So in the case of uh, the marathon bombings, you know, we were, we were, we responded in a way to create a lot of emergency capacity thinking there would be, you know, vast numbers of injured people, um, you know, as devastating as it was, the fact was there, it was a relatively small number of people that had injuries, but, you know, we had to be able to surge in, in preparation thinking that, you know, we might have thousands of people, you know, flooding the emergency rooms. Um, but that's a, that's sort of an instantaneous, instantaneous sort of one-time event. You know, the pandemic, this, this is something that we're seeing play out over, you know, w weeks and, and months. So, um, so the type of capacity you need and the type of response you need is, is different. But that really gets back to the, you know, the, the planning that I was talking about and having, you know, having the capacity to be able to respond um, to different types of events. I, I also want to mention, Craig, because, you know, I know this is a technology show and my role, um, you know, I'm a technologist and I'm, a t I'm the technology chief for, for my division within Partners Healthcare. Um, you know, the technology landscape has changed dramatically over the last, you know, five to 10 years in a way that also really helped us um, respond um, to this event. So, for example, you know, we were able to surge up, um, you know, almost instantly um, when the pandemic started to be able to support, um, you know, large numbers of our employees working from home. We have about 26,000 people um, out of our 80,000 person organization who are working remotely right now. So in, in mm -hmm. pre-COVID, you know, our normal, a normal day was about 1,700 people working remotely. So we were able to surge that up almost overnight to 26,000. We've been able to surge up um, uh, telehealth, which you mentioned. So we, um, you know, in, in Massachusetts, telehealth 
pre-COVID was not as prevalent as in other parts of the country because it's not reimbursed in the state of Massachusetts. So um, still we were, I'll call it tinkering. We were tinkering with telehealth, um, you know, anticipating that someday reimbursement would become a reality. So we were starting to put some, um, uh, some investment into it. Uh, but we, you know, once the, you know, once, once the COVID pandemic struck, we initiated a, a you know, this, this sort of mass project to get, you know, our 10,000 physicians up and running on telehealth. And again, we did that in a matter of, I'll say weeks, but still that's something that would normally have taken years to accomplish, right? So, so within a couple of weeks, um, we were able to push out telehealth uh, technology training, you know, um, et cetera, to 10,000 physicians. And we are doing, you know, we're providing a significant amount of our care, both internally, meaning, you know, within our hospitals and our hospital beds, but also to patients at home and also to this uh, Boston Hope Field Hospital, um, we're doing through telehealth. And again, you know, pre-COVID just a few weeks ago, we were doing a very, very small amount of that. Um, So technology, you know, cloud technology, the ability to, you know, um, surge capacity when you need it um, has really been a help. Um, And, you know, it's something that even five years ago um, would have been uh, a significant barrier to us being able to respond uh, the way that we've been able to respond. So it's been, uh, I guess, an interesting evolution. And, um, and I think that um, the one thing uh, that, that definitely has helped has been the, the state and uh, federal government's willingness to basically abandon the rules um, they use different terms, I'm sure, but 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 basically, um, it's like it's it's a, it, it's showtime, and we need to do everything we can, and so this is good. Um, do you think that um, we will go back to the heavily restricted uh, rules that govern telehealth before COVID? I know that's an estimation on your part, but yeah. uh, I just wonder what your thoughts. Sure. Well, I so you know I hope not, Craig. I you know the um, in many ways the genie's out of the bottle now, right? And um, the reality is, you know, our healthcare system and and it is highly regulated. Um, and as we know, regulations take a long time to pass, and they take a long time to change. So yep. we have a healthcare system that was largely built for, you know, for the, you know, in-person experience, whether, whether going to the doctor's office or going to the hospital and all of our infrastructure and regulatory uh, framework was built around that. So absent an event like uh, COVID, it would have taken a decade or more probably for the uh, government to, you know, solve all those regulatory issues and, and really adapt them to the telehealth uh, environment. And, and so now to your point, um, and I, I, you know, I have to give both the federal and state government credit for recognizing this. Um, you know, as soon as the pandemic broke, they dropped all of those regulatory barriers. So now, um, so now we, we will be paid for telehealth visits. Um, all of the licensing, so for example, um, 
pre-COVID, a physician had to be licensed and um, I'm sorry, not licensed, what's called credential that every at every hospital. So if you're going to see a patient by telehealth at a hospital across town, you have to go through this month-long process of reviewing, you know, your, your schooling and all of your, um, you know, you have to file like 500 pages of documentation. And I'm not kidding. Anyway, Holy Christmas. Um, so the, they, <laughs> and, and, and so now you have to think about telehealth where you might provide services at dozens or hundreds of hospitals if you're a, some kind of specialist. It's, you know, that's not feasible. So, um, so for now, for the short period, all those rules have been relaxed. There's also rules about um, practicing across state lines. Um, so, you know, again, pre-COVID, a physician who's licensed in Massachusetts couldn't see a patient um, who is in New York State. Um, so anyway, for now, all that's been relaxed. So now, and, and now the genie's out of the bottle. So then what do you do about that? Um, you know, this event is not going to be over, right? We, we will have flattened the curve, meaning, um, you know, avoided a collapse of our healthcare system. Um, but this virus is not going to be solved for 12 to 18 months. So we have to figure out how to continue to take care of patients for that 12 to 18 months, how to keep them safe, how to keep our physicians and our, our nurses and our other healthcare workers safe. So, you know, we need to be able to continue to see patients by telehealth um, for an extended period. And I think it's going to require the federal and the state government to enact some kind of emergency legislation to deal, to, to deal with this. I mean, they can't just, they, they can't just throw all the regulations out because um, this is probably not an optimal long-term experience either. Um, but I think they mm, have to pass true. some emergency legislation that will, that will solve all those regulatory issues and put a reasonable amount of regulations back in so that, you know, so that we can continue to practice, you know, safely. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, I had this discussion a couple of days ago with some people who survived the broadband uh, stimulus bill, which was, um, you know, 10 years ago, um, where the government gave out six, seven billion dollars to these broadband projects, and it was mm -hmm. done, you know, fairly quickly. Um, but the problem with it being done pretty quickly is that you didn't have this, the, 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 the guidelines. Uh, you didn't have a lot of knowledge, actually, among the people who were doing, you know, giving that money away. So now we're, you know, 10 years down, and people are saying, oh, we need to have not only broadband, uh, but we also need telehealth because that's going to be a big deal and so forth and so on. Is there a danger that they, the, the, the federal government in particular, will move at such a way that it's not going to be as uh, prudent their, their, their investments, right? Because uh, it's one thing to say to a community or a provider, you know, like a, a, a AT&T or a provider, those kind of folks, and say, you know, okay, we're, we're going to need, um, you know, $20 million to build out this broadband infrastructure, okay? And that's very straightforward, right? But now they're going to yeah. ride on top of it telehealth. Um, we're talking about healthcare, 
and we're talking about doctors yeah. and, and different types of doctors and all of that, is the danger – is there a danger there that we could um, inadvertently screw ourselves over? <laughs> um, no pressure. Yeah, that's a great question, Craig. And, and, <laughs> it's a great question. Um, and, and just, you know, in the sake of transparency, um, I, Craig, the, the reason we know each other is I'm the, uh, I'm the board chair of OpenCAPE, which is one of those broadband um, projects that, that you referenced. And, and I'm happy to say, at least for OpenCAPE, um, it's a very successful outcome um, of, the, of that stimulus investment. But I, but I agree with you, there are other less, exam, less successful examples around the country. So right. from a broadband perspective, I mean, the you know, there's, there's three, three or four major impacts, I think, to broadband from the COVID experience. Um, the first, as you said, is telehealth. Um, so, you know, we, you know, you can't participate in telehealth if you are in an unserved or underserved area, or if you can't afford, um, a, a, you know, a mobile device and a, and a monthly, you know, broadband plan. Um, the second biggest area is education. So um, most of our kids are now at home uh, participating in school. Um, and you probably heard the same story that I did, that 50% of the kids in New York City are not able to participate in home education because they don't have a device, or maybe there's only one device in the home, and they have multiple children, um, or they have a device with a limited data plan, or they you know, uh, so, you know, New York City is not an underserved area, but the economics of, of uh, New York is that half of the children in New York City can't afford to fully participate in education. The third major area is working from home, which I also think, you know, we're not going to put the genie back in that bottle. A lot of people <laughs> and companies have now figured out how to work at home, and that's going to impact decisions they make going forward in terms of renting real estate and offices and heat and light and all those things. Um, and then the fourth area is that, um, you know, the, the, what COVID has actually caused a spike in internet usage. And so what the analysts are, are, are saying is that, you know, the, the, the broadband providers are always planning ahead. They're always um, building capacity uh, for the future. But well, what's happened is we've consumed that capacity that was planned for the future. So, so we're not running out of broadband, but we're hitting the cap. Um, and so now there's going to have to be an investment by, by all the broadband providers to build that additional capacity back in. So the government, uh, and, and then the last piece of this is, you know, our economy is going to be in tatters as a result of this experience. I mean, we're going to see another recession, depression, whatever you want to call it. I don't think we know fully yet what that looks like. And, and so the government is going to have to um, come up with a, a big stimulus bill and, and stimulus meaning not just, you know, provide, not just covering people's paychecks and unemployment, but, you know, creating projects that get people back to work and get the economy moving again. So I think, I think those areas I just mentioned, um, are, are all areas that are ripe for stimulus investment. I do think that the government will have to make another big investment in broadband to solve that, you know, the, the, the previous stimulus act, stimulus act, you know, made a dent in the unserved, underserved, but it didn't, it didn't solve it. And, um, you know, I think they're going to have to make some investments to, um, you know, to really solve that last mile issue for 
uh, for the, uh, the underserved and unserved. You know, whenever they put a stimulus package together, it's always in a hurry because they want to see the results quickly. Um, and you're always going <laughs> to yep. have people, you're always going to have uh, examples where, you know, people do a good job and um, are able to, uh, you know, put the money to good use and you're going to see some, some amount of waste. I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know how to solve that. Um, but uh, I do think we're going to see um, a big investment on the part of the government in, uh, in broadband and in those uh, areas I specifically mentioned. Now, what I would say uh, to that is if I look at a play or a uh, network such as Open Cape, right, which covers Cape Cod uh, area of Massachusetts, right, um, a number of people I had talked to maybe uh, several years before the broadband stimulus um, got pulled together, right, um, people were thinking about, you know, using the network for um, uh, research. I'm not sure if it was medical research, but it was some sort of research project. But that had started, started people thinking, well, if we had broadband, we could deal with that uh, opportunity. You know, the people were talking about the economic development aspect of uh, broadband. So in other words, there was talk or action or, you know, what have you before the stimulus kind of became real. And so I think that was one of the reasons why, um, you know, your group had a better uh, experience in terms of getting the the money and also using it. And, and, uh, and I would say that the other communities, um, because now that we have sort of this, backdrop of you know experience with the original broadband stimulus um is that we need to think through now um you know how much money you need what for what's going to be used because each each city each community county everything will be different and now but i think that with telehealth there's unchartered area in the sense of you know, I think there was a one statistic that said maybe 10% of the country had used some sort of telehealth over the course of the last decade, right? Um, so there's not a whole lot of experience to say, you know, we need money for this or that or we want to do X, Y, Z kind of thing when, um, you know, when it comes time to having that stimulus uh we we need to have better preparation, I would think, than where we're headed now. Because right now it's a total reflex. Now you guys did a great job with uh, Boston Hope. I mean, there's there's no three ways about it, right? But mm. um, I have talked to people in upstate New York that said that uh, when all of a sudden the restrictions went away and telehealth became a thing. Uh, the first implementation by doctors wasn't great. It was problematic. And, you know, and so I guess the question is, uh, I mean, not to you guys, but to the audience in general, um, you know, what are you going to do to get a better handle on what needs to be done before you start throwing money at it? I mean, that, that's my perspective. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Um, sure. Craig, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to respond to two things you, you mentioned. Um, so 
specific to telehealth. Um, so if you remember the same stimulus act that um, invested heavily in broadband also invested heavily in um, hospitals and physicians uh, implementing electronic medical records. So there is a thing called mm -hmm. the high tech act that was part of the ARA stimulus program that invested $20 billion and pre ARA, um, only about 10%, believe it or not, of hospitals and physicians had electronic medical records. And post-ARA, um, over 90% had electronic medical records. Part of what the federal government did um, as part of the High Tech Act is they set up these things called region, regional extension centers. And really what it was, um, these were places that were helping healthcare organizations and Physicians. A lot of uh, physician practices are one and two per people, one and two person operations. They're 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 micro businesses, uh, so they don't have IT staff. They don't have, you know, um, uh, they don't have a lot of knowledge, frankly, about how to how to even choose a software vendor. So the federal government set up these regional extension centers, and it was a resource to to the community of, you know, how do you choose a software vendor? How do you implement it? What are best practices, et cetera? So I think. I think, mm -hmm. I think the federal government should should look to that model again in terms of helping um, healthcare organizations um, adopt uh, telehealth uh, successfully. The other thing you mentioned, I'm going to put my broadband hat back on for a minute. Um, yeah, come on, know, bring it out. I would, <laughs> I would urge all my broadband friends out there. Um, you know, from with my Open Cape hat on, we are already part of the reason we were successful in the last round of stimulus is that we had begun uh, sort of a grassroots effort of planning uh, a network for our region long before the stimulus act uh, came to be. So we had, I mean, I won't say it was shovel ready, but we were well down the path of having defined what, what does this thing look like? How much is it going to cost, et cetera. Um, and that really helped us. So I would urge all my broadband friends out there to be planning now urgently um, for how you would apply for that next round of grants that is likely coming in the six to 12 month horizon. Um, so, yep. so start planning and acting now because it is, you know, I, I believe it's coming and the more, you know, the more you get a head start on it, the more, the better prepared you will be. And the, you know, the, the more successful grant application you will be able to get in when the time comes. Right, right. No, definitely makes sense. Now, we, um, uh, you know, one of the things again that that attracted me about this, uh, you know, having this conversation, was that um, you guys put ten thousand doctors onto telehealth. What exactly does that mean for for you guys? And um, what what are some tips that you would give to other communities um, for having that, um, you know, getting telehealth in, in position and to, and to provide a sort of a context, right? So I mentioned in the thing with New York, right? So New York had a situation where a lot of the doctors um, that were refusing to deal with, to deal with telehealth um, because of the, the parity laws and all of that, they couldn't get made, paid enough. But they were independent doctors. They weren't necessarily. They may have a practice, you know, part of a practice of doctors, but they're not necessarily part of hospital practices. Um, you know, does 
uh, does what you did with um, putting that many doctors on telehealth, is this, uh, you know, is, is it possible that you can, you know, scale that down so that, you know, a county or, or a you know, real air, rural area could do similar to what you did, just with smaller numbers, actually? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Craig, there's no, I think there's no question that this is going to be a huge boon for the telehealth uh, industry. And there's, um, you know, what we did, you know, we're a large organization with, um, you know, a lot of resources. Um, so we were able to bring technology in and stand it up and run it, in, you know, internally. Um, and so, but, you know, not all organizations are as large or have the resources. Um, and, you know, we even talked, there's still lots of these, you know, two and three person physician practices out there. So there are mm-hmm. telehealth um, providers out there. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple by name, not, I'm not advocating or, um, you know, I don't work for any of them, but there's one called American Well, there's one called Teladoc. Um, so there are vendors out there that have, you know, ready to go hosted solutions that you can, you know, quote, buy into, right? So that would be a, a model. If I was a, you know, if I was a, a, a small physician practice, um, you know, I, I would very much probably go in that direction. If you're a small to medium-sized healthcare organization and you have an IT staff and you have resources, you know, then I think it's, then you have to make, you know, are, is it a build or buy decision? Are, um, are you going to use one of the solutions, you know, out of the box that's out there? Or are you going to bring, you know, the technology in and, and stand up your own uh, sort of operations? So, you know, there are, there are options for scaling it up and down. Um, there are solution providers out there that will, uh, and, and even the American Wells and Teladocs, they have different models. So in other words, there's a model where they'll provide you the technology and the physicians um, and, and the call center and everything else. There's another model where you can, you can lease the technology, but, you know, use, utilize it with your own physicians. Uh, so the, you know, the solution providers out there have different models that you can uh, adopt depending on, uh, what the solution is you're trying to provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, okay. That that makes sense. Do you, um, uh, when I am asked about, you know, telehealth or, and people are saying, well, you know, can I get involved in, in, with it and so forth? I mean, we're talking about the broadband people that have networks and so <laughs> forth. Um, almost all of them tend to be thinking of telehealth as a service where I, as a patient, get in touch with my doctor, we have a video chat, and then we're done. You know, maybe it'll go as far as, you know, going to, to a dermatologist, you know, or they may have mental health issues, and so they're going to a psychiatrist. But um, as I sort of describe telehealth, right, it looks at all of the aspects of uh, the continuum of care, and part of it is administrative and part of it is, you know, treating uh, folks, is the way that people look at telehealth, will that impact on how they prepare uh, for telehealth and how they actually uh, implement it within their um, community, do you think? 
Can you restate the question, Craig? I want to make sure I understand it. Sorry. Well, so there's a general consensus that telehealth is I call my doctor, um, we talk, uh, you know, with, with video chat, and when we're done, we're done. And, and that, that's kind of the, that's the, the extent, the way a lot of people look at telehealth. But telehealth, if you look at the description that I threw out at the beginning of the show, right, it's looking at all aspects of the continuum of care, and it looks at the administrative part as well as the uh, treatment part. And if you have this holistic view of telehealth, is that going to affect or should it affect how you plan, how you fund, how you implement telehealth? I see. Um, sure. So there's. Um, so, so let's start with the definition uh, of telehealth. And you're right. I think you know we we when we use the word telehealth, we we imagine or envision that you know this video experience that you're having with your physician, and that is one legitimate use case. Um, but the, the actual definition of telehealth is is any any healthcare encounter between a patient and a provider, and a provider doesn't. Ha- doesn't necessarily mean doctor. It can be a nurse, practitioner, a therapist. Uh, um, uh, anyway, any any kind of a pharmacist, any kind of provider um, that is not in person, right? So that can include a phone call. It can include a video encounter, like we described a minute ago. That video encounter can be real time or or not or not real time, meaning asynchronous, meaning you can record something and forward it to your physician to look at or provider to look at later. Um, it can involve multiple providers. So, for example, you might have an encounter where you, uh, you know, almost like when you go to the physician's office, maybe you see a, a nurse or a nurse practitioner first, and then maybe that maybe you then get forwarded on to a physician, or maybe that recorded interaction goes on to a physician. Um, and then we can start to complicate things even more by layering in technology. So maybe, you know, in the future, your initial telehealth interaction is with a uh, artificial intelligence bot who, you know, screens your case and gathers information <laughs> and routes you to the appropriate place. So, so you know, not to get too um, Star wars here out there, but, I mean, that's, those are use cases that will happen in probably your and my lifetime, Craig. Um, mm-hmm. But all of those are different modalities um, uh, of telehealth. And um, so did that answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, no, because I mean, you know, my my assumption, then you know, following that, right, that that, that it's a more complex, holistic um, exercise. Um, if you're going to fund it as a you know a state or a federal agency, that um, how you you know create the 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 the, the grant and how much you set up you know, how much money that each person can get, all of those kinds of things, and then what you expect and how you can um, uh, justify and also account for the success or failure of a, of a, of a grant program, you um, mm. need to kind of take into account all of those complexities of the telehealth um, you know, experience because uh, it's not as simple as throwing in some uh, fiber and uh, wireless routers and to consider that a success. 
and you could, you know, again, I'm I'm sort of looking at it from the, uh, you know, this is great that we're doing, you know, putting money into telehealth. <laughs> I'm just concerned about the uh, the return that we get for this kind of investment. Sure. So, um, um, yeah, and I, Craig, and I, I think that explains in part why the why the regulatory environment has been so slow to change. Um, you know, there's a term in medicine that we use called evidence-based, and so evidence-based means you know that we make we make decisions on on how to treat a patient or how to yeah how to treat a patient based on what the evidence says. Um, and, and so, you know, telehealth is still new enough that you know we don't have a body of evidence that says you know, in this situation, this type of telehealth works or this particular pathway of seeing a nurse practitioner first and then being forwarded to a, a physician or, you know, recording a session and sending it to a physician in India who's going to review it. Um, so, you know, we don't have the evidence. Not, not every modality of telehealth is appropriate for every situation. Um, I mean, I'll use a ridiculous example. If, you know, if you severed an artery and you're bleeding out, you know, a, tel- a phone call, actually any form of telehealth is probably not appropriate. You should be calling 911. But um, <laughs> even things, you know, if, um, if you've got a, you know, if you have a rash, you know, um, a phone call is probably not going to do it. You probably, you know, the, 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 phys- you know the, the provider on the other end needs to see the rash and understand what's going on. So we don't have yet um, the body of evidence that says what works when or what's best. Um, given particular situation, um, the reality is we we won't develop that body of evidence, uh, you know, without doing it. Um, what you know, pre-COVID, the the regulators have been, you know, I, I, I call it the breadcrumbs. It's like Hansel and Gretel. Every year, you know, they they put a few more breadcrumbs out to say, okay, well, we'll pay for this kind of situation or that kind of situation, um, and they've been putting these breadcrumbs out kind of one at a time to try to build that body of evidence. But now with the current pandemic situation, all of that, again, all those um, barriers have been lifted and, and, you know, different forms of telehealth are being practiced everywhere. And again, I I think we're going to have to continue to do that for the next 12 to 18 months. So I think, you know, what, what, what I'm hoping, what I hope is that, you know, us as care providers, caregivers and providers, but also the government as they think about, you know, how to address the regulatory framework um, are are looking to the experience that is being developed right now, that body of evidence that's happening, you know, right now in real time. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. So we've got uh, about nine minutes, so we're going to start to wrap this thing down. But one of the things um, I wanted to ask about, we we didn't uh, talk about it initially, but um, it's the aspect of using telehealth to facilitate emergency um, uh, response, right? So, for example, if you are in a more rural or suburban area around Boston, and if you send the uh, ambulance out to, you know, a person has a heart attack or they have, um, you know, some some other trauma, um, are, are you guys planning or have you already planned for do using telehealth, you know, from the ambulance or from the person's home, assuming they have a, you know, broadband connection, 
Um, is that in the, is, that, is that in the works there, or should it be? Um, so it, it, there there are pilots of that particular use case. So you know telehealth in ambulances and and as part of uh, EMS, there are pilots of that going around around the country. I, I can't cite one specifically that I that I know of that's going on um, in, in Massachusetts, but. Uh, you know, I do think that's a legitimate use case, right? I mean, if if you have a truly emergent situation at home, you're going to call 911. Um, it would be, you know, our EMS responders are, are are great and they're heroes, and thank God we have them. Um, you know, but they're not physicians; they're not they're not advanced clinicians. And it would be, um, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases it would be beneficial to to have the benefit of, you know, those advanced clinicians. Um, you know, in, in the ambulance while the patient is uh, en route to the hospital. So, so I do mm-hmm. think that's a, uh, I, I think that's a legitimate use case. Um, again, the, you know, the reimbursement and the regulatory environment have not been friendly to that in the past. Oh. Um, so let's see what, the, let's see what the regulators do. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I would also think that, um, you know, we have talked, no, well, not you and I, but we, you know, there's general talk about um, using telehealth to uh, reduce trips to the ER because if I can figure out that my child isn't, uh, you know, is not in a serious <laughs> situation, we can look at this and so forth and make a decision. So you don't actually take the child all the way to the ER is always, I think, a good option. Um, and again, I know that there was a there was a, a article in one of the you know in a, several articles about um, the um, one of the uh, Presbyterian Hospital in New York, where they did a lot of work on understanding the mechanics of you know how telehealth can uh, affect the ER practice there. And so I'm assuming that uh, that people will eventually start to see more of that thing happen. Um, hmm. Okay. Uh, are there any other yeah. sort of closing thoughts on uh, the program? I mean, obviously the pro, you know, you you were successful. You got together. Um, you know, what happens uh, when when the uh, the emergency is over? Um, yeah, uh, boy, Craig, I wish, I, <laughs> I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, what I, ah, what, I okay. say, <laughs> what I can say is, um, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm not going to wade into political waters, um, at all here, but I think, um, I, I think what we've seen play out in the pandemic is that there has been a, um, it's largely been a, a, a local regional response. So in other words, what we have seen play out in Boston is different than what we've seen play out in New York, which is different than what we've seen play out in, you know, San Francisco, LA, et cetera. Um, So I think that um, I guess my hope would be that when we come out on the other side of this, that we don't have regional solutions or responses to how to address the long-term, you know, lessons of this, uh, experience that we're having. I, you know, my hope is that 
the state and federal government can come together and work together um, uh, you know, on, on legislation and solutions that are going to um, you know, help, help the whole country. And so, again, I think that um, you know, just purely from an economic perspective, I think that we're going to need a huge infusion of, of uh, cash in the form of a stimulus program. Um, so I, I, I believe strongly that broadband will be, will be part of that. Um, and I think the areas of focus, again, will be education, telehealth, uh, and, and working from home. Uh, I also think each of those three areas are, are you know, ripe for some, some investment as well. The regulatory environment um, hopefully will be addressed, um, you know, to really help those areas uh, thrive as we move forward. Okay. Last question. Um, what advice would you give to other communities, be they small or large, um, for doing something similar or at least laying the plans out for a similar type of field hospital uh, as a way to deal with various emergencies? Yeah. So I, you know, I would really, I would urge people if you don't, if you don't already have a regional disaster planning um, process function, whatever going on in your region and, 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 you know, that involves, you know, government, healthcare providers, um, suppliers, you know, logistics, et cetera. Um, if you don't have a regional disaster planning, you know, function in your area, um, I would urge people to set one up and, uh, you know, and, 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 and really, you know, invest the time and resources into it um, and, and form those relationships because, um, you know, sadly, I don't think this is going to be our last um, crisis, um, and you know, with global warming and, and all the other things that that are happening around us, um, I, I think those investments will be good investments uh, for the future. Great! I appreciate your time, all of your uh, experience, um, and and for doing this is a great job. I mean, I think this is pretty awesome. So, uh, John, thanks again for for being here. Um, I'm sure I will call on you from time to time as we, uh, you know, move on down the road. But uh, it's been it's been a good uh, it's been a good session. Yeah, Craig, I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on, and I just want to wish you and all, all your listeners um, uh, good health, stay safe, and uh, let's ride this one out together. And I'll see you all on the other side. And thank you, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and I'd also like to ReadyNet, who is our sponsor, Community Broadband Networks ad subscribers and increase revenue through the premium telehealth services they make possible by connecting home. Thank you, folks, for being here. Uh, we'll talk again next week. Thanks. Thank you, Craig. Bye-bye.